Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, despite whatever errors I make in what I say, if there is something that is right or worthy to be heard, let us hear it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was driving down the interstate. Right in the triangle area, you know how trafficy that is. It's not a place where you want to get slowed down. You can get really irritated at people who slow things down artificially because it gets so congested. I'm driving along, and I notice that there is a, an expansive, empty interstate before me. And I come up behind two cars traveling 35 miles per hour on I-40. And their windows are rolled down. The driver in one car has his arm out the window and they're chatting, going back and forth between each other. I guess catching up. I am right behind them. Cars behind me. Interstate ahead of them. They're talking away. Well, this is not good. It's not good for anybody. So I just pull over and I pass them on the shoulder. There's only two lanes there. And I went on by And I came up to another car and I went past it and I could not believe what I had just seen. And I looked in my rearview mirror to give them one last scornful glance when I saw that the car that I passed was just swerving all over the interstate, obviously a drunk driver. And in a moment, it occurred to me that those two individuals were protecting everybody behind them slowing everybody down, no doubt having called the police so that this situation could be resolved. And I felt so dumb, so silly for what I had done. It didn't feel good. What does it feel like to be wrong? In a TED Talk, Catherine Schultz asked her audience that question. The answer seemed obvious. They shouted back, bad, embarrassing, ashamed, silly, dumb. And then she responded, no, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like any of those things. What it feels like to be wrong is exactly what it feels like to be right. It's only when you realize that you are wrong that you feel bad, embarrassed, ashamed, silly. This is called error blindness. To be wrong but not to see it is to merely live in a zone of righteousness. Schultz compared error blindness to a Roadrunner cartoon where Wiley e. Coyote runs off the cliff without realizing it, still running ahead, and then comes that moment of realization. He looks down, sees the drop below, looks up at the viewer with this uh-oh expression, and then his body plummets, stretching his neck until the head snaps down. And he always survives the crash below. 
but it can't feel good. And it usually doesn't feel good when we suddenly realize that we are wrong. Our passages are about such a moment. Each is a story about having that dreadful experience of realizing not only has one been wrong, but realizing also the damage that has been done. First from 2 Samuel. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. He brought it up and he grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, a man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. And then from Acts, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might have them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The word of the Lord. Those two stories are iconic. Each of them describes a terrible moment when two of the most significant figures of Scripture, David and Paul, suddenly realize that they are terribly wrong. It is a devastating experience. And yet in Christian tradition, we celebrate both moments because they were turning points in the lives of people who were great servants of God. For Saul, who changes his name to Paul after this experience, the moment is devastating. Before he realizes he is wrong, he is convinced that he is doing the work of God. He has been living in the kind of determined zone of righteousness that only a zealot knows. You know, those who are so caught up in a righteous cause that their filter cancels out any possibility of righteousness in those who are not in that same zone. He is defending the true faith, seeking to cleanse the Jewish people of the corruption of Christianity. 
And so certain is he of the rightness of his cause, he joins in the killing of those who are following Jesus. The one Saul is certain is a false messiah. Now it's unclear whether he, like David, is actually guilty of murder, but his hands are not clean. And then Saul's moment. He is stopped in his tracks when the crucified Jesus appears on the road in front of him and asks, why do you persecute me? And in that blinding moment, Saul realizes that he is attacking the God he thinks he is defending. He is devastated, and for three days he cannot see straight or hold his food and drink down. On the third day, he rose from his desperation with a new name, Paul, and a new cause, following Jesus. You might think that King David's devastating moment is different and that he already knows that he is in the wrong. He had an affair with the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers. Learning she was pregnant, he tried to cover up what he had done, first by trying to trick Uriah into thinking that the child was his, and then, when that did not work, arranging to have Uriah exposed in battle so that he would be killed. But here's where David is like Saul, being wrong and not knowing it. And that is, he thinks he has gotten away with it but a prophet pays him a visit. Nathan tells the story of a powerful man who steals something beloved from a poor man simply because he is able to. And David is furious and cries for punitive justice, only to then be told that the story was about him all along. You are the man, Nathan says. And in the moment of his saying it, David's denial is pierced and he realizes that his secret is no secret at all. And shame and guilt overwhelm him. As I said, those stories are iconic. They have been central stories for the church in talking about sin, our need to confess it, and our need for forgiveness. They are stories about how sin, how moral harm diminishes us as human beings and children of God. We become less than we were created to be. Guilt and sometimes shame are the ugly but appropriate responses and in light of God's grace are the means by which we are driven to confess, to seek repair, and to begin again, maybe even in gaining a new identity. Like leaving behind Saul the self-righteous zealot and becoming Paul the servant of love that is patient and kind, not jealous or boastful, not arrogant or rude. But we need to be careful with these stories. And we need to be careful with our theology of sin. Because while these stories are about being wrong, there is more to being wrong than what these stories have to say. I'm going to repeat that. These stories are about being wrong. But there is more to being wrong than what these stories have to say. Think about our church practice of offering a corporate prayer of confession in worship on Sunday mornings. We did so earlier in this service. The words you were to say are printed for you in the bulletin or were shown to you on a slide. And occasionally I have to defend this odd practice of asking everyone to confess together something like the prayer that we prayed or this ancient prayer. We have left undone those things we ought to have done and we have done those things which we ought not to have done and there is no health in us. 
I remember a conversation with someone who had a hard time praying a prayer like that in church. When she looked at what she was asked to say out loud, along with everyone around her, including people she did not even know, she wondered, why do I have to pray this? This prayer doesn't speak for anything I did this week. What sins did I commit? What did I do that was so wrong? I don't remember what I told her then, all that I told her anyway, but it seemed to help. But now that I've had more time to think, whatever I told her, I have more to say to her today. For now, not only do I want to defend the practice of corporate confession, I want her to know that I hear her and that she has a point. If you've heard me defend the practice of confessing sins in church, indulge me as I repeat myself. With all of liturgy, we are practicing how to live faithful lives, and corporate prayers of confession are not meant to be manipulative. They are prayed in worship not to artificially create a devastating moment such as those experienced by David and Saul. They are practice. We pray them to prepare for those moments when we do need to come to some point of accountability in our lives. They remind us first to be open to the possibility that we may be wrong, that we are not perfect, that we are capable of harming others with what we do or fail to do. And then when it happens that we realize that we have done wrong and we can do even greater harm by denying it, we'll be better prepared to admit it, seek to repair what we have done. We'll be better supported too because we've also practiced remembering that we find healing and wholeness in God's love and grace. That's my defense for our praying the prayer confession. But while the prayer of confession is about being wrong, there is more to being wrong than what the prayer of confession has to say. Go back to the words of the classic prayer I quoted earlier. Remember the last words? There is no health in us. Those words date back to at least 1552, and the doctrine behind it, the doctrine of total depravity, dates back at least to St. Anselm. Anselm was a brilliant theologian for his time, but his understanding of human nature was, I believe, flawed. He said that the very fact that we are fallible, the very fact that our knowledge is limited, that we make mistakes, that we have to practice and learn, that very fact points to our fallen nature. Our fallibility points to our depravity. That we get things wrong makes us wrong. Did you hear that? Anselm wasn't just talking about moral wrongs, the wrong of having an affair and then trying to cover it up with the murder, or the wrong of zealous self-righteousness that tries to cancel others out because they dare to believe or follow a different path, the wrongs that violate the Ten Commandments, that violate the laws of the land, that violate the land itself, that violate the healthy boundaries of a relationship. No, he was talking about all wrongs. Even mistakes are signs of our depravity. This doctrine leads so easily to this terrible idea that many of us have that to get something wrong must mean that there is something wrong with us. 
No wonder we hate to admit that we are wrong. Now truly, with no disrespect for Anselm, I must say that I believe that he was wrong about being wrong. Another saint had it so much more right when he said something that was later adapted and diluted by Descartes. Saint Augustine said, I err, therefore I am. We make mistakes because it's in the nature of our humanity to do so. We are not gods. And so we do not, nor never will we, in this life anyway, know all that there is to know. We will never get it right in whatever we do, even when it's our intention to do what is right. And it's not shameful to be this way. It's human. It is to be embraced, in fact so that we can gain the crowning virtue of Christianity, humility. Now, I have a terrible memory, but I remember something that my pastor father told me when I was a child. Now, when you hear it, you wonder why something like this stuck with a child. He said to me once that he thought that sometimes in Sunday worship, instead of having a prayer of confession, we should have a prayer of acceptance. We should offer a prayer that asks God to help us accept that we're not going to get everything right, and that doesn't make us bad people. Now, Dad wasn't talking about moral failures, those true sins where our pride or shame causes us to do or not do something when we know that we should do better. He was saying that healthy people, healthy people, know that they are limited and should hear that God gives them grace. And that means that they should give themselves grace if we are to live successfully in this world. We do not have to have our value tied up in being right all the time. There is, in other words, a rightness to being wrong. I want to go back to Catherine Schultz, who gave that TED Talk I told you about before reading our passages. In her book, Being Wrong, Living on the Edge of Error, she argues that while to live, we have to assume most of the time that we are right, we should simply accept that even in that necessary zone of rightness, of naivete, we should accept that to some degree, we're still wrong. Not some of the time, all the time. And that, she says, is what makes life such a great adventure as we continue to discover what we had gotten wrong and what there is new to be found out. For instance, imagine living in a world where it is common knowledge that the world is flat. In that world, you can live, you can draw accurate maps to navigate by and define borders so that you can be better neighbors and friends and enemies. You can enjoy the beauty of the stars overhead and marvel at how the sky, which is just out of reach, is a ceiling that allows these beautiful lights to shine through and then write poetry about it. You can appreciate the sun as it crosses the sky and then burns out on the horizon and then anticipate the joy of the new sun that will be born tomorrow. So much was wrong in the minds of those who then thought that they were right and still survived 
and often thrive despite what they had wrong. Now imagine living in a world that is now known to be round and revolves around the center of the universe, which obviously is the sun. And you enjoy hearing stories passed on of the people and places on the other side of the globe, so unlike the small part of the world where you have lived your life. You hear also of this discovery of the bones of huge animals. They are called dinosaurs, which means terrible lizards. And you wonder if somewhere on this round earth, those lizards are roaming still. So much was wrong in the mind of those who lived in that world, and yet they survived and often thrived. And now imagine living in the world in which we live in today. We now know that the sun is simply a minor star in an immense galaxy, which itself is one of countless other galaxies. We know that it takes millions of years for the light of stars to reach our eyes, and we live successfully in this world too. We're even able to send billionaires into space. But let's be clear. The day is going to come when others will say about us, if they only knew. We have moved from one world to the next because of the gift of our being wrong. For us to fully enjoy the wonder of God's creation, it requires that we step out of this tiny, suffocating space of insisting on being right and looking around to see what else it is that we have to learn and to be willing to say, well, what do you know? I was wrong. Just a week or so ago, I heard an interview with, I think, Ira Glass, if it wasn't him. It was one of the producers of the wildly popular podcast, This American Life. He said that the joke around the staff is that every one of their stories is about being wrong. What makes the stories interesting is the humanity of them. And thus, they are always about change. They are always about people who have to let go of what they thought was true to get to a different place that will work better. Sometimes, as with Saul, to a new identity. Now, mind you, I am not forgetting the harm that being wrong can do. I have not left David and Saul behind. If we get so defensive about being wrong about things that are simply mistakes and shouldn't inspire those awful feelings of being silly, embarrassed, dumb, ashamed, how much more unwilling are we to admit those wrongs that are at least flavored with evil? With David, it was doing something he knew to be wrong, but then trying to cover it up. With Saul, it was doing something that he was certain was right, but which blinded him to the great harm that he actually was doing. What is it with you or me? I don't know right now where you need to ask this question in your life, but what are those areas where you are confident you are right but really where you should be confident that you are at least in part wrong. Does it have to do with race? I'm talking about all theories about race and who and who is not a racist. Does it have to do with health and medicine? Any certitudes we might have about viruses and masks and vaccines? Does it have to do with elections and candidates? With the virtues, but especially the faults of those we love or with those we hate? 
Does it have to do with just how smart or stupid, how wonderful or how shameful we think we are? Does it have to do with the mind and will of God? We have to survive and we seek to thrive in life. So of course, of course, we need to spend most of our time in a zone of rightness. It's actually a psychological problem if you can't do that. We need to act on what we think we know, and we need to take stands on what we believe to be moral and ethical and important. But let's still embrace the rightness of wrong. Let's stop making being right the key to our value and identity as human beings so that we can be less defensive, less ready to demonize and attack those who challenge us, more ready to consider data and reason that might prove us wrong, more able to get out of our own way, and more ready to better enjoy the adventure of life. For remember, because it makes us human, there is a certain rightness to being wrong. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.